This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be a first-time listener and you've tuned in through the Internet or locally through 88.7. And this is an hour where we take people's questions. Sometimes people are facing an issue in their church or ministry or just trying to understand and apply a passage of Scripture. And if we can be of help by God's grace, we will do the best we can. All you need to do is you can call us, as Rick just said, at that 843 South Carolina Exchange, and the 843 Exchange is 525-1859, or you can call us at 877, the toll-free number, the call letters, WAGP980, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. All right. I think we're ready to jump in with both feet. So let's go ahead and get started. I think we've had several questions already come in. Indeed. And our first comes all the way from South Wales, Australia. Gabby writes, Hello, Dr. Brogy. A confessing Christian from my former Pentecostal church has announced that she is pregnant outside of wedlock. I now attend the Baptist church. A member from my former church said, we must not judge this person. And I agree, only God can condemn and that no one does good. However, for years I believed I was saved and lived a wicked lifestyle because I guess I had a low view of sin and I wish some Christians would have guided me and asked me to examine myself. It wasn't until I started listening to John MacArthur that I realized I wasn't saved. I'm now a fairly new Christian and I'm just looking for guidance as to how Christians should lovingly respond to situations like this. Well, it's a it's a great question. And you say a member from my former church. Um, I would have a couple questions. One is this former member, uh, for, a member from the former church you attend? Does she attend that church? In in which case, the leadership of that church would need to ask, how do we address the issue? Obviously, adultery is wrong. Fornication is wrong, whether it results in pregnancy or not. Thank God she has chosen not to uh, abort the baby, which is what often does people do to hide the sin or to, quote-unquote, get rid of some so-called inconvenience. So thank God she hasn't done that. Um, The question that you're really asking is, is she converted? Well, let me first say that a Christian could easily do what she's just done. It's not impossible. Uh, The Scripture says, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, why? Because therefore no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation, he'll always provide some way of escape. And so if we think that I could never do this, then we are really tempting the devil to tempt us. So none of us are potentially over the 
um, you know, we've reached some point in our sanctification where we couldn't fall immorally or otherwise. So we need to guard our hearts, watch over our hearts with all diligence. I would say there's a problem if this woman, A, is living in an immoral relationship and she's a member of the church. Uh, there's a real problem there, and such an issue would invite church discipline. If your brother sins, you go and reprove him in quiet. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the church at large. And if this woman out of wedlock, maybe she had some fling with some guy, and she has great remorse, and she is broken over it, um, and she realizes what she has done was wrong, and she's repentant, then that's a good thing, and she needs to be welcomed into the fellowship, and she needs to be able, through the guidance of her pastor or elders, or however the polity of that local assembly may be structured, to be able to say, hey, look, what I did was wrong. I make no excuses for my behavior, and I brought shame not just to my Lord uh, in my own testimony, but also to the testimony of this church. And if she's not able to say that, then she really becomes a negative factor Uh, to that local assembly because uh, she's saying it's okay to be immoral. And when the world sees that kind of thing where we preach one thing and live another way, they they really just uh, look for such excuses to say you hypocrites. So, um, you know, it might be too that as you say, um, Gabby from Australia, uh, that she's not converted. And so if you have a relationship with her, maybe this would be a great opportunity to go to speak to her compassionately in love. And yet at the same time to say, hey, look, I need to tell you, I thought I was a Christian for a long time and discovered only that I was not. And so if a person's direction is to live immorally, they have the sure marks of an unbeliever. Um, I, I find very interesting what the Apostle Paul says in a number of passages uh, dealing with sexual immorality that are virtually ignored uh, by the modern-day church, even those who call themselves, you know, evangelical. Because the term evangelical, I'm afraid, has lost its meaning. But Paul says, for instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor feminine, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he refreshingly adds, such were some of you. So God can save anyone out of any kind of background. So we're not necessarily talking about uh, perfection, but we are speaking about direction. In the context of this statement, don't be deceived, Uh, thinking you're a Christian when you're not, uh, it's actually dealing with uh, some Corinthians who had lived sexually immoral lives, and yet they were believers. But again, the key here is direction. And so I would think of a passage like Galatians chapter 5, where the apostle admonishes us to walk by the Spirit so that you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. And, of course, the term flesh here is being used of the sin nature within. It can be used to describe the skin that covers your skeleton. It can be used to describe someone who has a worldly point of view. 
but most often sarx is used in the Bible to describe the sin nature within. And so some English translations say for the sin nature, they say interpretively what the flesh is, sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh or the sin nature. They're in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. In other words, in the believer, there is a war that the unbeliever does not struggle with on the same level. Now he has a conscience, but his conscience can become defiled, seared, calloused, a number of different uh, descriptive terms that are used to modify one's conscience. He can even develop an evil conscience where he calls good evil and evil good. And that's really where our culture is going. Uh, God is giving the world over, not just the United States, but the world to a depraved mind. And when a culture loses its morals, it loses its mind. Uh, immorality always leads to a form of insanity, and that's where we are going in, you know, today's world. Um, but there's this intensified war that the believer knows because he's indwelt by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God um, does not want him to engage in some kind of immorality. And then he says the deeds of the flesh or the sin nature, they're evident, and he names them immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, and so on. And then he says, and things like these, this is not a complete list, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you, that those who practice, and there's a key word, practice, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, we're not talking about perfection, we're talking about direction. Why does he admonish us to walk by the Spirit? Because we're capable of any of these things. And if we don't walk by the Spirit, we're going to really set ourselves up for disaster. We need the Holy Spirit within us to live a holy life. Uh, So, again, direction. He names the fruit of the Spirit. And then, interestingly, he adds in verse 24 of chapter 5, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. In other words, they've set a new direction for their life. And just the next book over makes some very similar counsel he said, for this you know with certainty, I'm reading Ephesians 5, 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with him. Why? Because we can potentially do some of these things. But again, if this is a person's lifestyle, Uh, this invites the wrath of God because it shows they have never been regenerated. You were formerly darkness, now you're in the light, and the Lord walk as children of light. And then he describes what the fruit of the light is and that the true, genuine believer is trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And so we're not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Rather, we are to expose them. It's disgraceful, he says, even to speak of the things that they speak of. So here's the thing, Gabby, you know, it sounds to me like you're one of those persons who maybe knew the plan of salvation in your head, but your life was never fundamentally changed. And it might be that that's your friend. Uh, You could know in a moment's time when you sit down with this individual, if this person is regenerated, they're broken over their sin. There is a real repentant spirit. If it's no big deal, and if it's no big deal to the church she's a member of, then you've got a real problem. And uh, it might be helpful to uh, help her 
through my first handout in the basic discipleship course called Assurance of Salvation and Eternal Security. We deal with that three-legged stool, so to speak, on how to have assurance of salvation. And one of the aspects of that three-legged stool is a changed life. And if my life has not fundamentally changed, then I have a false assurance of salvation. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto from Savannah is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yeah, good morning, Rich Korsner and Carl Brogy. My question is, uh, how come when sometimes we're Christians, you know, they they, they said they're Christians, and but then they 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 use this term I hear about Christians say this that the uh, I'm a work in progress. But sometimes they use it so casually, so then they can justify the casual. How you said they're they're complacent, apathetic things towards the things of God, not willing to witness, not willing to evangelize, not really uh, studying seriously the scriptures, uh, not really seriously uh, um, be convicted of sins or having a real spiritual battle with the enemy, you know, they're just living their life like a a limbo land, fifth with the the things of this world. And so they use that as a just like a something just to cling on to, you know. As I'm, I'm yeah, looking progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good question. So, Alberto from Savannah, your question is re- closely related to what Gabby from Australia just asked. And again, when someone is born again, the direction of their life changes, and if there's no new direction then they have every reason to question their conversion. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so when we are born again, the grace of God that brings us salvation teaches us, those of us who believe, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and zealously in this current age. And so sometimes it is an issue of growth. Uh, We are commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so some people have enough of the knowledge of the cross to be converted, but they haven't grown much, and so they live like a baby. But there's still signs of life. The Corinthians is uh, the Corinthian church is a classic example because um, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he describes different kinds of people, a natural man, the unbeliever who does not receive or understand comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. He finds them to be foolishness. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So that's a clear mark of an unbeliever. He's not able to accept biblical truth. Why? Because he doesn't have the mind of Christ. He hasn't been regenerated. And so when you talk to him about holy, righteous behavior, he has difficulty with it. There's people now who call themselves evangelical who are saying that, you know, homosexual behavior is okay, transgenderism is okay. Um, These are people, obviously, who do not have the mind of Christ. All they have is a false testimony. Uh, But then he describes, of course, the spiritual man, the mature man, who's able to praise things. And then the third group that he describes was the group that typified the Corinthians. And I, brethren, he's talking to believers could not speak to you as to spiritual men, that is to mature believers, but as to men of flesh, as to infants or babes in Christ. 
He's describing his encounter with them when he went to open the church, so to speak. He was the one who laid the foundation in the Corinthian assembly and that he was the first to preach the gospel in Corinth according to the book of Acts. And so how did he deal with these new Christians? He said, I gave you, it's a past tense, I gave you, he's looking back at his time there, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. And rightly so, a new believer uh, needs the milk truths of the word of God. He doesn't need some heavy duty meat truths. He needs milk. The problem was indeed, even now you are not yet able for you are still fleshly. And so approximately four years had gone by when Paul writes this letter to this group of people and uh, they're still babes in Christ. And it's obvious there's jealousy, strife among them. And you, you see it about it. And he, he comes into the, um, you know, in the chapters that follow and he begins to highlight some of their sins. They're, they're, they've got lawsuits against one another. Uh, some of them are divided and they're following these little factions within the church. Some of them are, you know, misusing spiritual gifts. Some of them have fallen into sexual immorality. Some even at the Lord's table got drunk. Again, the capacity of a Christian to sin is not dissolved when you're born again. You can still sin. Uh, but again, we're speaking about a new direction. So these were babes in Christ, and they needed to grow up and mature in their faith. It is possible for a Christian to uh, certainly become lukewarm, and so he speaks of the Laodicean church. These were real believers who were lukewarm, and their lukewarm behavior was not pleasing to the Lord. And so we need, again, to guard our hearts because Satan, if he can't remove us, which he cannot, from the kingdom of light, if he can at least immobilize us and and neutralize us, so to speak, where we are not passionately, through the sharing of the gospel and through a changed life, introducing people into the kingdom of light, he's won a great victory if we can somehow sleep in his arms. But, you know, if if someone's spirit is, well, I'm just a work in progress and this is an excuse for my sin and I have no problem with it, then they need to examine themselves and test themselves to see if they really be in the faith. Because remember, at the end of time, there is going to be a huge number of people, not a few, but many who will claim to be born again Christians. They will know the plan of salvation, but they will have never have met the man of salvation And the Lord will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not I once knew you, because you can't have salvation and lose it. We are secure. But I never knew you. You never had a relationship with me. And yet, outwardly, they were doing all these spectacular things. But inwardly, they were not regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so, you know, challenge your brother. If he's your brother in Christ and he's using this as an excuse, you'd say, well, gee whiz, you know, you need to think this through. Well, what if you're not really saved to have such an apathetic attitude? And how dishonoring is that to the Lord God? If you are saved, that he purchased you with his own blood, that you're not your own, that you are to glorify God in your body. Um, What are you doing, my friend? And see if you can step in and help. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, our next caller would like to know 
what your thoughts are on the Southern Baptist Convention and what do you think the biggest issue they face is? I guess today is the first day of the convention. It is. So um, I know at last count they had 16,000 delegates. and A new uh, record, I believe. No, not really. No. Uh, I went to the Southern Baptist Convention in 1990 and there was 40,000 of us there. So uh, there, but this is a this is a, a a huge upsurge that we haven't seen in like fifteen or twenty years. But during the seventies and eighties, uh, and really nineteen seventy eight was kind of the launch point. The Southern Baptist Convention had drifted theologically. They had put out the Broadman Commentary, which was you know just terrible, just absolutely horrendous. Uh, they've reprinted it and redone it with true evangelicals, again, evangelical, but true Bible-believing scholarship. Uh, but they had drifted from issues like biblical authority, inerrancy, things like this. And and so in 78, they elected a conservative president, and they realized if we could do this a number of years in a row, we could fundamentally change the board of every major SBC seminary and institution. Each year when someone's elected president, they have the opportunity to appoint three new people to every SBC board. And if you do that long enough and you appoint the right people, if the board had drifted, then you can change things. And so um, like at Southwestern Baptist Seminary, uh, President Dilday was fired and uh, because he denied biblical inerrancy. You can't deny biblical inerrancy and call yourself a good Christian. You had a professor at Southeastern Seminary who was, describing abortion as an alternative choice for a woman to exercise. You can't call yourself a solid evangelical Christian and teach such things. So what happened is uh, slowly the SBC has drifted again, this time not over the biblical issue of authority, but really sufficiency. And so what a lot of Southern Baptist churches have done, whether it's a Stephen Furtick, who's really wacko, or, you know, Rick Warren, uh, largely through his model, guys like him and Bill Hybels, who's not a Southern Baptist, created this model on how to grow churches. And the model really uh, ignored the need to teach expository preaching. And yet that's what a pastor is supposed to do. He is not to stand up like a clown and entertain lost people. He is to be a man of God, preaching the word of God and the spirit of God, and he's supposed to feed the flock of God. He's supposed to feed the sheep. And if he doesn't do that, then the church over time will become doctrinally weak and sensitive. And so the issue that I have faced in my early years of ministry concerned the inerrancy of the Bible. That was the big discussion. Is the Bible the inerrant, infallible word of God? The issue really starting in really the early 2000s, though the seeds were planted in the 1990s, concerned the sufficiency of Scripture. Well, we don't want to bore unbelievers, and we want to reach them, so, you know, we need to add drama and ballet and music and rock bands and smoke and dark rooms and, and just go light on Sunday morning with any kind of Bible teaching. So you have the Rick Warren model. Look what he just did. He just ordained three women to be pastors. We knew it was coming. He was already vacillating on these issues of gender roles. People said, well, that's no big deal. What are you, some kind of misogynist? No, I'm a biblicist. 
And the scripture teaches that men and women, though they are equal, uh, they are not to live out the same kinds of roles. So it's egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Complementarianism says men and women are equal, but they have different roles. So what has happened because of the weakness of the SBC convention on doctrinal issues and doctrinal uh, just knowledge you know, people are being swayed. And so critical race theory, which is not what most people think it is, um, it is not a good thing that is coming to the church. And certainly churches should not be racist. And if they are, they've got a huge problem. If members of a local assembly cannot reach out and invite people who are unlike them, they've got some spiritual growing to do. And they need to take some serious spiritual inventory. But, you know, intersectionality, critical race theory, all these new quote-unquote tools, why do we need them? Again, because the Scripture's not sufficient in some people's minds. So this is really a very important convention. It's somewhat of a crossroads, a fork in the road, where they have to decide which way they're going to go. So pray this week. Uh, J.D. Greer didn't do us any favors, and of course, under covid He was able to extend his leadership as president from one to two years. And so that was not good. Um, But, you know, when J.D. Greer comes out and says, look, we don't want to be offensive to transgender people. And so if Patty comes into your church and Patty wants to be called Peter, you should use uh, the preferred name or uh, her or he or whatever he is, preferred pronouns. That's that's a stinking, rotten, lousy theology and teaching. That guy should be fired, but it's a local assembly. And so the authority, rightly so, lies in the local church. But if the local church is ignorant, then they're going to follow the ignorance of the pastor who happens to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So these are important issues, and we will see what happens this week, but pray, pray that God would give us a good SBC president because they represent a lot of churches in America. All right. Uh, Along those same lines, Ronald from Beaufort uh, asks, would you ever consider doing a message on the fact that critical race theory is unbiblical? Yeah. In fact, I'm planning, God willing, maybe this summer to do a message on maybe a series of messages on doctrines of demons. And this is really a demonic doctrine uh, that, again, in the last days, God warns us that there would come a time when the teaching that would reflect more and more uh, the church would not come from God's word. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, you know, There are some terms in the New Testament like last days in latter times, and those are distinctly different. Now, don't confuse it. In the Old Testament, uh, last days can refer to like uh, latter times to the same time frame, namely the second coming of the Messiah. But in the New Testament, last days is used to describe that time frame that began Uh, with God's Son coming to earth and starting his church and the Pentecost. And so Peter stood up in Pentecost and said, this is what would happen in the last days. This is what Joel says. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. So we're living in the last days. I think we're living in the last of the last days. But there's also the term latter times, which describes that time frame at the end of the age. And the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. 
the faith is a articular use of this word faith. It's not fall away from faith, but fall away from the faith. And so it's much like in Jude, uh, the faith that was delivered to you once and for all time through the apostles. He's describing that body of truth we call the Bible. And at the end of time, people will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And that's kind of where we are at. You know, the Columbia City Council meets today at 2 p.m. to discuss whether pastors and Christian professionals and psychiatrists and psychologists can do what we call reparative theology or repair, reparative um, uh, behavior. Uh, where someone say say a thirteen year old comes into my office and he says I I think I have feelings for the same fe- sex does that mean um I'm homosexual and I say to him as a pastor look homosexuality is an act it's not so much a person as it is an act and it's an evil act and you need to recognize it for what it is. And if I give such counsel or if someone is, quote unquote, as we would say, gay and I introduce them to Christ and I begin to teach them how to stay far from the gay lifestyle so that God can restore the natural function. And yes, I've seen homosexual people have their natural function restored where heterosexuality becomes the drive in their life, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Homosexuality is an unnatural act. But if I give that kind of counsel, according to the Columbia City Council, I'm going to be breaking the law. So the second reading has come. Go to palmettofamily.org. It's not too late to call in. Uh, They changed the meeting from tonight till 2 this afternoon. I think they're hoping nobody will be there. And there's no people allowed in the building, so it's going to be via Zoom. But if you know people in Columbia, they should be uh, on that Zoom call and be a part of that meeting to speak up. It becomes really essentially important. So if a, a, a boy comes in and he says, I think maybe I'm supposed to be a girl. And I say, no, God created you male and female. There's not, no such thing as being transgender. That's a doctrine of a demon. And so is critical race theory. It's a doctrine of a demon. And so I hope to do a a couple of messages anyway on some of the doctrines of demons that are upon us here in these last days and to address such issues. Appreciate the question. 843-525-1859, or you can email us at tbl at wagp.net. Don't forget, if you... uh didn't catch today's program in its entirety, you can always go to our website, wagp.net, and click on the archives button for a previous Bible lines or today's Bible line as well. Alvenia from Ridgeland wants to know who are the woman and child in the Revelation and what do they represent? Well, Revelation 12 once says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is an interesting verse. I preach through the book of Revelation. I have a whole message on this. It's an hour long. You might want to listen to that, but let me just give you the short answer. It's kind of like the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, you know, who are these people and so on. And all kinds of wacky views have 
been postulated in the history of the church when really the the what God intended is is brought out in the text itself. Mary Baker Eddy, uh, she was the founder of Christian Science. I did my undergraduate work at at Boston College, and her um, mansion was right across the street from my dormitory. I went over there one time, and of course, when she died, Mary Baker Eddy, if you're not familiar with her, she was the founder of Christian Science that's neither Christian nor scientific, kind of like grape nuts. In either case, um, when she died, she had a telephone put in her coffin. It was one of the earliest telephones because she believed mind over matter that technically you could think your way out of any kind of physical problem, even death. In fact, when they, she died, they didn't really want to admit it. And so for a couple of weeks, they propped her up in her carriage and still brought her up and down Beacon Street there. And uh, as if she were alive, she they finally buried her with the phone. Um, she's No, she's never called. And um, nonetheless, but she argued that um, she was the woman and the child that she founded was Christian science. That's just wacko. The man-child was Christian science. Obviously not in John's view when he writes that. Roman Catholics say the woman is Mary who they refer to her sometime as the queen of heaven. And the man-child, so to speak, is the church. Of course, number one, Mary never ascended to heaven. At least uh, the Bible is clear that the uh, raising of Old Testament saints takes place at the end of the tribulation. She was a member of the church. And so uh, her resurrection hasn't taken place. That will take place at the rapture, though absent from the body, present with the Lord. But they argue it's one of the seven feast days in the Roman Catholic Church. So as a young boy, as a Roman Catholic, we would be required. It was a holy day of obligation to go celebrate the Assumption of Mary. And it was a relatively new doctrine. It was Pope Pius XII in 1950 who said that Mary was not only sinless, but now she ascended to heaven. And that made the dogma of praying to her maybe a little bit more realistic. But that certainly is not what is in view. Um, You know, some believe that the woman is the church, but that's an impossible view because um, God's son, it says here, she gave birth to a son. So if the woman is the church, then that would mean that the church gave birth to Jesus. And the truth is, is that Jesus has come and gone ever before the church was born. So you have these beyond Roman Catholics who teach replacement theology that Israel, well, they're a thing of the past. And so we, the body of Christ, are the new Israel. But again, it's somewhat convoluted. Look at it. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman. The woman is not the church, though the church is certainly represented as a woman as the bride of Christ, but this woman is pregnant and the bride of Christ is described as uh, the virgin uh, that's betrothed to the Lord Jesus. So you really have to allegorize the Bible to come up with some of the wacky interpretations. A great sign, uh, Samion Mega, Mega, we get our word large, a large sign was given. And a sign is always symbolic of something. And if you remember the key as when I taught the Revelation for understanding Revelation is the Old Testament. There's 404 verses in the Revelation. There's some 300 references to the Old Testament. Uh, 
So there's a certain assumption that you have some knowledge of the Old Testament. And so when you read this verse, it kind of rings a bell if you've read Genesis. It brings you to the 37th chapter where the 12 stars represent the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, it's from Israel that the Messiah comes. And so Joseph has this dream. It's a revelation from God that Israel is going to be preserved through him. Why? Because Israel is the nation that would bring the Messiah. That's why God can say to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And of course, Israel is described as well in the Old Testament. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and other places is the wife of Yahweh, the wife of the Lord. And so uh, Israel is the nation that gave us the Messiah. And Paul underscores that in Romans 9. He says, Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Messiah, the Christ, according to the flesh. And so Israel was the nation that gave us the Messiah, and that's really what's in view. That's the short answer. If you go to searchthescriptures.org and click on Revelation, listen really to the whole 12th chapter. I did three or four messages just on the 12th chapter, and I think it will really cement it in your mind. But listen at least to the first message. All right, very good. Abdel from Louisville, Kentucky writes, Could you please explain how we can observe and honor the Sabbath day? I know God rested on the seventh day, and that's a great example for us. But is it okay to work out, to go to the park, to walk or run, finish a school project, etc., on the Sabbath? My wife and I go to church on Sundays, but very often she tries to find excuses to do all kinds of activities on Sunday when we should be praying and meditating on the Scriptures. Also, uh, if you could, would you have Pastor Ed Vernoy teach on the Meet the Pastor in Spanish? I would truly appreciate that. It would be very helpful to the Hispanic community. Well, to answer your latter question, Abdel, and he's from Louisville, um, the Meet the Pastor presentation, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend, is available at the Community Bible Church website. So if you look under messages, you will see it in Spanish. Uh, Pastor Ed has done it a couple of times. So it's not a direct translation uh, of my own words, but uh, Pastor Ed took the booklet, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? He's heard me go through it many, many times, and he did a presentation in Spanish. Um, He, of course, served in Venezuela as a missionary for 18 or 19 years and fluent in Spanish and did a fantastic job on it. So you might want to um, have that link. In fact, I'll, I'll send the link to you so that you have it. And Rick, if you can find the link and send it to me, I'll send it to him. Mm-hmm. Um, with with that said, um, his other question is uh, concerns what, Rick? What, what else does he want to know? Oh, concerning the Sabbath. Yeah. So Here's the thing, um, Sunday is a day that is to be set apart to meet with God's people. In the truest sense, it's not the Sabbath. In the Sabbath was given to Israel. It was one of the Ten Commandments. And in six days you shall do your work, on the seventh day you shall rest. And you're following the example of the Lord. And so they didn't work on the Sabbath. And there was a number of Sabbath regulations, and some of 
the people in Jesus's day, of course, took it to an incredible legalistic extreme where, look, I, I was uh, in Israel and I was visiting an Israeli family and I said, it's kind of dark in this hallway. I said, I've got a flashlight here on my phone. No, 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 no. Don't turn on your phone. Um, you know, this is a Sabbath. We can't make electricity. So a Jewish family, an Orthodox family that's practicing, they have all their lights on before Sabbath begins. They just leave them on all night um, so that they have light as needed in the home. Um, With that said, uh, some of the regulations can be very, very legalistic and rigid, and Christ confronted this all the time. Oh, you know, you healed this man at the pool of Bethesda, but then you told him to pick up his pallet, and that's work, and that's evil, and you're a Sabbath breaker, therefore you're a false prophet. Now, when the church begins, it begins uh, gradually, not all at once. There's kind of a transition period as you read through the book of Acts. Uh, they will gather with other Jews on the Sabbath. Why? Because they are to take the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But they begin to meet on the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Because the Lord of the Sabbath, in light of the resurrection, dictated that that was the day God's people are to meet. It's not by accident either that the church was born on Sunday. Uh, not on the Sabbath, but on Sunday. Christ resurrected from the dead on Sunday. And he meets with them eight days later on a Sunday night. And 50 days after the resurrection, the church is born on Sunday because that's the day of Pentecost. So on the first day of the week, Paul gives specific instructions in 1 Corinthians 16. That's when the church gathers. We're not to forsake that assembling together. We need to gather on the Lord's day, on the first day of the week. I know with COVID and everything and live streaming, and this was a big issue, by the way, during the time of the Spanish flu, maybe misnamed, but nonetheless, they called it the Spanish flu. But, you know, congregation said, should we not meet? And should we meet? And we don't want to violate the forsaking of our assembly together. And others said, well, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And should you meet so that you can die? And there were actually entire congregations, entire congregations that died of the Spanish flu. And finally, the church said, okay, we're going to wait till we get past this, and then we'll gather again. And of course, when this pandemic came, nobody knew the full implications of it and its full ramifications. Nonetheless, you know, churches stopped meeting. They tried to offer other alternatives where God's people could gather electronically or otherwise. Lay all that aside. When the Lord's day comes, you need to be with God's people. There's dozens of commandments you can't even obey if you're not with God's people. When you gather, you're to use uh, those spiritual gifts, especially that are focused on the body of Christ. How can you do that if you're home? You're in disobedience. And one aspect of stewardship is each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God, Second Corinthians 5, at the Bematos, the, 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 the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of the just. Peter says, as each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another's how is good stewards the grace of God? And so stewardship uh, implies accountability that 
my time, my money, my gifts are not mine. They're God's. I'm just the steward over it. And there will be the judgment of the just, not the great white throne judgment, but a judgment of accountability. But I think for some Christians, what they like to do in the Lord's day is all go to an early service. We have two services at Community Bible Church. A couple of reasons. One reason is so that everyone can attend church on a Sunday. And two, that we have regular teachers with our children on a given Sunday, at least pre-COVID, we could have between four and 500 children on a busy Sunday. That's a lot of children. And we didn't want children to walk into a Sunday school class with different faces every week. Well, if you had the same face every week and just one service, then someone's going to miss church. And so there is a number of reasons why we have done what we've done. But some will say, I'll go to the early service so I can have the rest of the day free. And then there's a gathering later in the evening, maybe our children's Bible club like Awana, and they blow it off. And they don't think it's that important. It's the Lord's Day. And it's the Lord's Day all day. Or I want to go to the early service because the second service is like 10, 15 minutes longer sometime. Yeah, it is. It's the Lord's Day all day long. And we should prioritize that, and that priority should be seen in our lives to our children. And if it's not, we're not helping our children. Uh, They need to see that the Lord Jesus is the most important person in our lives. Now, with that said, understand that when you looked at the Roman Empire, you had millions of people who were formalized into slavery. And when we think of slavery, we think just of African slavery. That was not really the picture in the New Testament. When you conquered a people, you registered the conquered as slaves. You didn't put them all in prison. You registered them as slaves. And so if I was a Christian, I might be given some slaves, and I was responsible for them. The slave could be a doctor, could be a teacher, could be a carpenter. They could serve in all kinds of professions. And, of course, Paul deals with this issue. Just because you're a Christian and you have a slave doesn't mean you mistreat him. And just because you're a slave and you have a Christian master, you don't take advantage of him. You serve him as if you were serving Christ. Now, his goal was not to, you know, um, endorse slavery, but to blow it up. And that's ultimately what the church did. That's another sermon in and of itself. But with that said, uh, many of the people in Rome. Sunday was not, quote-unquote, a day off. It was a work day. And so very often the church met Sunday evening. So you see Paul, you know, preaching in one place where a guy named Eutychus falls out of the second floor because it's warm and it's hot, and he's preaching a long sermon, and he falls down as dead, and Paul raises him from the dead. Uh, Why are they meeting at night? Because it's a Sunday evening service? No, that was the service, and that's when they met. And so I say that to say that you can be rigidly legalistic, but if you have the opportunity to be off on Sunday, you ought to be. You ought to gather with God's people. Now, look, I I got my arm caught in a lawnmower when I was 17 years of age on a riding lawnmower, and I'm glad that the doctors and nurses didn't have the day off because I wouldn't be speaking to you today. So I'm glad policemen still work on Sunday. But if you can get Sunday off, you should. Or if you can uh, work your schedule so that you are not in disobedience to forsaking the assembling of the saints, you should do everything in your power to do that. Uh, But because of the fact that, you know, so many worked under Roman slavery, a lot of the 
uh, laws that God gave in relationship to the Sabbath were lifted. But the principle of still honoring one day in seven still fully applies. You need a day where you can rejuvenate spiritually. And some of that rejuvenation comes from serving the saints, not just coming to sit, soak, and sour, but to serve. There is a spiritual power and refreshment that comes when God's people actually plug in and serve on the Lord's day when the church is gathered. So, um, you know, there are some things, you know, I don't, I, I don't, you know, look, if, if the ox is in the ditch, okay. But, you know, there are some things I don't do typically on Sunday that I would do on the other days of the week, not just because I'm a pastor. And sometimes I'll arrive here at the church, like last Sunday, I arrived here at 630. And some days if I meet the pastor, I don't go home until eight, nine o'clock that night. I'm just here all day. But there are times when maybe I don't have a Sunday evening meeting. I go home, but it's not a typical day. It's still a day in which to kind of refocus and refresh and rejuvenate. And your kids need to see that. So, Dad, you're the spiritual leader. Take charge. You know, love your wife. Say, look, we're going to wash the cars on Saturday and get the grass cut on Saturday. And we're going to try to clear the decks and get everything done that requires a lot of work so that we can set this day aside as a special time to be together, to rest, and to rejuvenate ourselves spiritually. And I think that's that principle is unchanged. All right, we've got about six minutes left. And uh, Paula from Colorado Springs, Colorado writes, In Matthew 10, 1, Mark 6, 7, and Luke 9, 1, Jesus gives his 12 disciples authority to cast out unclean spirits. I researched and learned the Greek word used here for authority also means power. Verses 2 to 4 name the disciples, including Judas. Is this authority or power the Holy Spirit? If so, why did Jesus include Judas? Well, it's it's a good question, and so um, interestingly, the same word for power is used in John one twelve. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so, when Jesus gave them authority, it's the word exousia, and it's used in different contexts in different ways. But it basically denotes the ability. He gave you the authority, the power, the exousia to become a child of God. Uh, And likewise, here in the commissioning of the apostles, he gives them authority to cast out unclean spirits and to do miracles. Now the question becomes with Judas. Let me just first say parenthetically that Judas is an unbeliever. Uh, Jesus makes that clear in John 6 and John 13 that this one who is called the son of perdition and interestingly there are only two people in the bible who are called the son of perdition one is judas who's literally inhabited by the devil uh, he ends up becoming indwelt by satan not just a demon but the chief demon satan himself even so the antichrist he is certainly under the control of the evil one and he's also called the son, a son of perdition It's only two people, but uh, number one, just know that Satan can do miracles. And so in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives a warning that during the time of the tribulation, especially when evil is showing itself in full bloom, uh, there will be people who will claim to be the Messiah, false messiahs, false Christ will come doing many miracles. Um, Look, just because a man does a miracle doesn't mean that he is a man of God. 
And Jesus makes that very clear in Matthew 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've warned you in advance. So if they say, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he's in the room, inner rooms, do not believe him. Why? Because when Messiah comes back, the world will know it at the second coming. For as the lightning uh, strikes uh, and it's visible and it's clear, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. With that said, uh, Judas is an unbeliever, and it's important to recognize that unbelievers can do miracles, and that's clear from what we just read. Uh, in Matthew 10:1, it says that he gave authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Who's present in those 12? Well, among the 12, there's Judas. He's one of the 12 to whom Jesus gave such power to do a miracle. Now, nothing within the biblical text would postulate that Judas is not doing the same authentic miracles that the other apostles did. But Judas does it as an unbeliever. Um, Certainly, uh, there are unbelievers who do things under the empowerment of the evil one. And so you see, for instance, the magicians of Egypt who were able to emulate some of the miracles that God did through Moses including turning their rods into serpents and water into blood and so on and so forth. That was more than tricks. Those were miracles, not of the same nature, obviously, as Moses demonstrates that God is greater in power. But still, uh, they did miracles, and they were lost people. And there are some rare exceptions where God does his work through lost people. It might be Osiris, who's called God's servant, who 150 years even before he's born, Isaiah prophesies of him by name that uh, he is going to be God's servant to release the people from captivity, or a Balaam, whom the New Testament makes crystal clear as a lost man, or or Judas. Judas, um, not because he's a puppet, but because of choices he made, he does miracles. I think in this case, though, it's a little different. I don't think he can say that Judas is given, being given power by the devil, not at this moment, but his power actually is given by Christ. Uh, He has the authority to go out and to do the same thing that these other guys did. There comes a point in the church where apostles are separated uniquely. Uh, Judas never really reaches that stature. Of course, he he hangs himself and uh, ends up, well, lost for all of eternity. So it's an interesting passage, an interesting concept to ponder. You might want to listen to my sermon on Matthew seven thirteen and following. I address this issue some in that. We're out of time for the Bible line today. So glad you can join us. If you have questions that come to your mind, you can always email them to here at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Or you can go to searchthescriptures.org. Uh, there's an app, a phone app as well. And if you go to that website, there's a drop-down menu, and one of the options is Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. Uh, Sometimes it takes us a month or two to get to your question, but we will, by the grace of God, if Christ doesn't come back first. Thanks for being with us today. Pray for the Southern Baptist Convention, and pray for the meeting in Columbia this afternoon, 2 p.m. 